You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 517 of this podcast. Today is December 14th, 2022, and also a Wednesday. And in this episode, we're going to be talking a bit more about the historical context of the nativity, what all was going on leading up to the incarnation, the birth of Christ. Also, too, we'll be touching on the Cambridge Dictionary, adding some woke definitions to what is a man, what is a woman. Why not just change the dictionary definitions while you're at it? (laughs) We're throwing everything uh, out the window as far as good taste and uh, sense. We'll touch briefly on pro-free speech Christian rapper Bryson Gray, permanently suspended from Twitter. Uh, Also, there's a teacher in Baltimore, Maryland, who has gone online bragging about how she is indoctrinating children She's teaching in the public schools, and uh, there's nothing you parents can do about it if you don't like it. Well, that's just tough. And then before we get into talking through the historical context of the nativity in depth, we'll touch briefly as well on a certain congresswoman having uh, read an activist's own tweets to them in a congressional hearing. And, uh, you know, this very neatly ties in with the Baltimore teacher and also the banning of the uh, Christian rapper from Twitter. I'm not sure entirely what all is going on with this Bryson Gray story, but nevertheless, we will share what we do know. And we'll start there. You got to start somewhere. You might not know everything. Well, join the club. Only God knows everything. Start with what you do know, and then build from there. But first of all, because we've got to start somewhere, like I said, Cambridge Dictionary, adding woke definitions of man and woman. There's a story by Dylan Burroughs, December 13th. That was yesterday. The Cambridge Dictionary, and I quote, recently updated its definitions of man and woman to include people whose gender identity doesn't correspond with their biological sex. The definition of man in the online version includes a second meaning, quote, an adult who lives and identifies as male, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth, end quote. The example sentences alongside the definition include, Mark is a trans man, equals a man who was said to be female when they were born. Their doctor encouraged them to live as a man for a while before undergoing surgical transition. The definition of woman also includes a second definition that similarly reads, an adult who lives and identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth, end quote. So you get the picture, right? You get the big idea here. Basically, they're putting it into the dictionary definition that a man is whatever he wants to be, whoever says that they are a man, uh, as long as they're an adult. Now, watch for that to be, in the interest of consistency, something that is malleable as well. Maybe that gets uh, 
changed in the next iteration of the dictionary war. But why? I mean, that's my question. Why is it even necessary to say that the definition of a man is an adult or that the definition of a woman is an adult? I mean, what if somebody feels like they are a 25-year-old trapped in a 15-year-old's body? What, what about those kinds of situations? Now, also, does this do anything with regards to, uh, you know, age limits on smoking, drinking, making certain decisions, living on one's own? You know, really, why not just burn the dictionary? Why, why not just make a pile of dictionaries and set them on fire? Because clearly, there's a problem with objective meaning. And it not just coming from your heart and your mind, whatever you feel, that being the reality. Now, obviously, this is not just a problem confined to gender identity or sexuality. This is across the board, almost regardless what issue you pick, in the interest of consistency, (laughs) this is cropping up again and again, that people feel a certain way and therefore they want a certain outcome and they believe mistakenly that they are being liberated. Really, they are destroying themselves. And I touched on this in our episode from from yesterday. I talked about briefly the Republicans who are voting along with the Disrespect for Marriage Act. And I say, I will say it again. I said it then. I will say it again because it's still true. They destroy themselves. So also with the Democrats and the Democrat Party, And the American people, if the American people go along with this because they don't want to make waves, they don't want to upset, they don't want to be punished, they don't want to be ostracized, the inevitable is being delayed because the end of this is destruction. It is. You know, it would make sense to just set the dictionary on fire and say, okay, well, we just don't believe in words having fixed definitions anymore. We just believe in words meaning whatever we want them to mean so that we can have and do whatever we want to have and do. Uh, that would be more honest, but actually it would it would be a mercy too in some sense because this is just, it, it's, it's mind-numbing. And there is no reasoning with it. It is inherently unreasonable and it's at war with reason because it's at war with life insofar as reason would facilitate our ongoing existence. The folks who hate wisdom, they love death. The folks who hate God love death. All who hate me love death, wisdom says in Proverbs. And yet the flip side on a happier note, which we need (laughs) The flip side is, as is often the case in Proverbs, with the compare and contrast, two things that are either very similar are put together close by so that you understand them both in a new light, or two things that are very, very opposite are put right beside each other so that you understand the difference. The preceding verse in Proverbs 8.35, which is followed by verse 36, naturally, the preceding verse to 
he who fails to find me harms himself, all who hate me love death, is whoever finds me finds life and obtains the favor of Yahweh. And amen. Amen. We want wisdom and we want life and we want favor with the Lord. And so we know we we can't accept the Cambridge Dictionary. These people have become wise in their own eyes and their foolish hearts are darkened. And what Paul the Apostle writes in his letter to the Romans in the New Testament is true of them. God has given them over to a reprobate mind, which is to say that word reprobate means unreasonable, incapable of reason. They have been given over to a state of unreasonableness, and yet that's not what we're called to. We are called to let our reasonableness be evident to all, which means we have to reject this. And in the interest of being prudent and practical and not casting pearls before swine and not giving to dogs what is holy, maybe we don't tell everybody all the time that we reject this, but there's just no getting around the conflict. There is going to be a conflict when this is the zeitgeist. This is the spirit of this age. There's going to be a conflict. There's no avoiding it entirely, although you pick your battles, right? You do pick your battles, and in so much as it depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men. Moving on, for for, uh, us to talk about picking your battles and conflict etc., etc. Pro-free speech Christian rapper Bryson Gray permanently suspended from Twitter. That's the headline. That's the title of some reporting by Andrew Chapados, December 13th, 2022, just from yesterday at theblaze.com. And I quote from the article, Christian conservative rapper Bryson Gray has been permanently banned from Twitter after previously remarking that Elon Musk's takeover of the platform was generally a good move for free speech. Gray is no stranger to either bans or controversy, having had songs removed from Apple Music as well as Spotify and YouTube within the last two years, specifically for, quote, medical misinformation, unquote, in at least one instance. The reason for the Twitter suspension is not immediately clear. Even to Gray, Twitter did not reply to a request for comments on the situation. Quoting Gray, I think I got banned because I called Elton John gay, which would be weird for obvious reasons, because he is, right? He is. Quote, Elon Musk censors speech more than the old Twitter. That's an objective truth that people look over because he allowed a few people back on Twitter. And you know what? Uh, New Twitter policy. Here's the screenshot of the tweet from Elon Musk, November 18th, 2022. New Twitter policy is freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. Negative hate tweets will be max deboosted and demonetized. So no ads or other revenue to Twitter. You won't find the tweet unless you specifically seek it out, which is no different from the rest of the internet. And so, you know, maybe that's the reason why I am not back on Twitter. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, it could end up being that Elon uh, he capitalized on this uh, moment and it'll be better, but it's not going to be great. And he's still going to be defining negative and hate tweets, uh, you know, in many cases, however the left wants him to, in the interest of him being pragmatic, him being practical and trying to pick his battles. I think that's very unfortunate. I'm not going to lose sleep over it, 
if Twitter is still uh, not a place where I can speak freely, uh, I guess I invest my time and attention elsewhere. But I do think it's unfortunate that there are all these questions, right? There are all these questions about what one is and is not allowed to say online and why. The Cambridge Dictionary can change the definition in a crazy way. And what would have been yesterday's moderates and liberals increasingly are reacting to the woke stuff and pushing back on it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to welcome in yesterday's conservatives and principled Christians. Uh, it, just doesn't, it doesn't mean that, right? It doesn't have to mean that. It doesn't necessarily mean that. I can say I cheer on things getting better if that's what Elon Musk buying Twitter represents. Obviously, the left is upset about it. And so do I think he's stemming a tide there of tyranny, of repression, of ugliness? Do I think there's a preservative aspect to what he's doing anyways, even if I'm not back on Twitter? Yes, I do. Do I think it's unfortunate that I'm still not back on Twitter and <laughs> we don't have a faster uh, you know, turnaround time for folks like me having been booted out of the public discourse? Uh, also, yes. Also, yes. In other news, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have a woke teacher, actually, from Baltimore, Maryland. This is a story here from two days ago, Candace Hathaway writes again for the blaze the article is titled put the taxes in the bag teacher gloats about not getting fired despite indoctrinating students and i'm looking at the screen share of the tiktok video in question it's uh tiktok at am raya 07 am i underscore am underscore raya underscore 07 something like that and uh, very nice glasses, you know, very, very bright colors. Uh, also, you know, just a very contemptuous look here on her face. Young gal, she doesn't look like she's terribly old. I would guess in her mid-20s at latest, at oldest. But uh, there's also a little caption here. I don't, I don't know if this is a, um, you know, caption from somebody who was sharing this video like a libs of TikTok sort of a thing or what, but uh, homeschool your kids before it's too late. Maybe she's mocking parents like me who do actually homeschool our kids. Maybe she's mocking the parents who are threatening, but have as yet not, uh, you know, followed through with pulling their kids out of these public schools. Uh, I'm not sure, but reading the reporting and I quote from Candace Hathaway's article. In the video, Alexa Ciotto, a Spanish teacher at Pine Grove Middle School in the Baltimore County School District, gloated that her public school position is funded by taxpayers while dancing and lip-syncing. F up on your B word. Uh, Ciotto faced criticism from a TikTok user after she posted a video of decorating her classroom with LGBT plus pride material. The user wrote, quote, none of this is what education is supposed to be about. Reading, writing, arithmetic, why are you so effing hellbent on indoctrinating our children, end quote. The teacher responded to the comment by posting a video captioned, quote, I just got fired for indoctrinating my students, end quote. Siota 
then wrote psych and stated that she was actually still employed. The educator cheerfully danced next to the captions, y'all will never take me alive and put the taxes in the bag. So here we have a very defiant uh, posture, of course, also very unreasonable, uh, of course. Uh, also, too, might I just mention that this is the or else. You know, when Andrew Clavin, for instance, over at the Daily Wire, when he invites Stephen Wolf on, as he did recently, I watched the episode yesterday where he was interviewing him. It wasn't the best of interviews. I'm sorry. But that was Stephen Wolf's, uh, you know, stuttering and nervousness, I think, not Andrew Clavin's failing, first and foremost. But, you know, when Andrew Clavin asks Stephen Wolf, okay, how do we even imagine, I can't even imagine getting to what you're talking about with a Christian consensus, uh, a Protestant Christian consensus ruling uh, our, our political philosophy, our political discourse. I can't even imagine that given where we're at right now. We are so, so far removed from that. And it's stories like this. It is videos like this of young teachers in the public schools basically teabagging on parents who object. And at the same time, simultaneously, those same parents, the majority of the parents in America saying, Oh, I don't like this. I'm going to complain and I'm going to do nothing but complain. And uh, and this is the or else. It is the or else. If you don't want virtue, what you will get is vice. You don't get a values neutral space if you purge Christianity from the halls of power, from our courthouses, from our uh, legislative chambers from the White House or the governor's mansion or the mayor's mansion. You don't get values neutral. What you get is somebody else's values and somebody else's values might be of the kind that change the definition of even what a man is or what a woman is uh, in the dictionary. I mean, you you might get that and we are. And is that so preferable? See, that's, that's the question. Is that so preferable to a circumstance in which this country has uh, thrived in centuries past, in decades past, not so, so long ago? We're not talking ancient history. We will be talking in a, you know, in a minute about ancient history, but we're not talking ancient history with regards to a time in American history where it was a Protestant Christian consensus. We're talking mere decades. Stephen Wolf points this out. Other people, I've seen him uh, discuss his book and his premise with Doug Wilson, for instance, uh, point this out. A lot of the debate about whether this so-called Christian nationalism is a good idea or a pipe dream or terribly foolish and misguided, you know, everybody has to concede or else keep silent that it was just mere decades ago that this was not the way of things. That, that this, you know, rainbow-colored, hair-on-fire, unreasonableness, reprobate mind kind of government would have been unthinkable. And where we are right now, if we send our kids into this, they will be taught 
to be unreasonable. And what you will get is unreasonable kids. And is that what you want? Is that so much better than, is that so preferable to pulling your kids out, paying the cost, paying the price? I mean, it's funny money now at this point. If it's a financial concern that's holding you back, I'm sorry. I have to tell myself every now and then I make really good money compared to what I ever would have dreamt 16 years ago when Lauren and I got married and started our family. I make really, really good money in comparison to back then, but it's monopoly money. It might as well be when the deficit has never been higher, when the government just prints money and devalues all our currency and the cost of everything is going up because they're trying to centrally plan the economy, not just of the United States of America, but of the world towards the end of a one world government, towards the end of global socialism, global communism. It's funny money at this point. So what does it matter, right? What does it matter if you take a hit financially to homeschool your kids? Also socially, you're going to get canceled. It's just a question of when and over what, if you haven't been yet at this point, you're going to get canceled. At sooner or later, you're not going to be able to put up with it anymore. And so you ought to just lean into that and right now get your kids out and protect their hearts and their minds, guard their hearts and their minds. You know, I've been thinking a lot here lately about in the New Testament, this passage concerning the caretaking of widows and the stipulations, qualifications regarding who can be enrolled for the church to take care of them, provide for them as a widow. You can't be under a certain age. Also, you have to have a certain you know, character. You, you can't just be a loose woman. You can't be an immoral woman. You can't be godless. You can't be a gossip and a busybody and wicked. You have to have upright character. You have to be following Jesus. You have to be past a certain age. Also, you have to not have relatives. And when Paul is explaining how your relatives should be the first ones to take care of you when you're in a bad way, what he says is that a man who does not provide for the needs of his relatives, especially those of his own household, is worse than an unbeliever. Worse than an unbeliever. You claim to Christianity, you make a claim that you are following God and that you love Jesus, and yet you ignore and overlook and step over even your extended relatives, when they're in a time of need, you're not a Christian. You're a fake. You're a phony. You're a hypocrite. You're play acting. You're doing what the Pharisees used to do. Read the parable of the Good Samaritan again. Who was that man's neighbor? Well, it was the Samaritan. Yeah, but the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other. They hate each other. They have very significant historical differences and theological differences. They hate each other. But And yet... And yet, you want to actually prove that you are a Christian and that you love God and that you love your neighbor, you have to provide for the needs of your extended family if they are falling on hard times. And this also, I think, gets into this whole business of homeschooling. Not everybody has kids. Not everybody has uh, disposable income if they do have kids. But this is where the church really ought to be pushing back on the idea of sending money everywhere else, but not investing it in education. We send money to every cause under the sun in this country, and that's great that we're generous, but sometimes that generosity is actually 
misplaced. It's a bad investment. We do well. We would do well. We would reap a benefit to meditate more on what the implications are of the boundaries that are put into place concerning the care of widows and the principles that those boundaries speak to. We would do well to meditate on the positive and the negative aspects. And honestly, I mean, this is uh, your mortal soul is in peril territory here. If you are a wealthy relative of some family that's got kids that are thinking about homeschooling, that want to homeschool, you know, what would be a really God-honoring thing is you call them up quietly, privately, and you say, hey, I heard you guys are thinking about homeschooling. I would like to help. If that's a financial thing that is getting in the way, I would like to help. What can I do? Would it be helpful if I invested in that, helped you get curriculum, helped you get some supplies and things like that, helped you get that figured out? The church should be doing that if there is no extended family, no immediate family. But even if the church won't do it, if extended family won't be supportive, I'm speaking to men, husbands and fathers here. Paul could not be clearer. A man who does not provide for the needs of his own extended family, especially those of his own household, is worse than an unbeliever. Husbands and fathers, you don't have the option in God's economy to just shrug and to just go with the flow and to just do what everybody else is doing. That has always led to a bad outcome for society when society is like that. Now, if if society is going in the direction of each man is expected to provide for his wife, provide for his children holistically, not just financially, not just put a roof over their heads and clothes on their backs and food in their stomachs, but holistically, you are considering the whole person. When we are told to worship our God in spirit and truth, when we are told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, well, that means that we have at least three or four categories to our person. If there are those categories, then to my way of thinking, as a husband, as a father, when I'm supposed to provide for and protect my wife and my children, first, because they're the members of my own household, well, then I have a responsibility before God to provide for and protect them, mind, body, soul, not just materially. But the material has to be in the broader context of what is in their eternal best interest. That has to be the case. There are not a few, a lot of teachers in the public schools, coast to coast in this country, who want to teach your children to affirm homosexuality and transgenderism and gender fluidity and abortion and gay marriage, so-called, but it's not actually, it's a mockery. It's a caricature of marriage. It's not actual marriage. They want to teach your kids to believe that climate change is destroying the planet and we are the disease that is infecting the earth. They want to teach your kids to believe in critical race theory and socialism. It's our job as parents to protect them. And if we're not doing that, well, then there is a God in heaven who knows and sees And there will be consequences. Some of those consequences are going to be just the natural consequences, cause and effect. 
But some of those consequences will be made of sterner stuff, unless there is at some point here a turning away and a repentance and a confession and going to God for grace. Because this is this is evil. It's it's corrupt. It's wicked. Now, I was actually very much encouraged. Again, let's bring it up a notch and let's be happy for just a second. <laughs> My wife goes to a chiropractor here in Greeley. And this chiropractor my wife has been seeing makes conversation, finds out my wife has eight kids, finds out that we homeschool, and says at a certain point in the past year or so that she has considered homeschooling her child or children, I don't remember which, and she's not sure. And what did my wife think? And so Lauren actually told her chiropractor, oh, my husband wrote a book. And this is why we homeschool. And the chiropractor was very interested. She says, I would really like to read this book. Where can I get a copy of this book? And I ended up saying, well, you know, just take her a copy. Take, take her a copy. We've got you know a few lying around the house or on bookshelves, uh, more to the point. And yeah, take her a copy. So she bought a copy of my book and she's apparently been reading it. And she was at a party this past weekend where... She got to talking with one young man who was himself homeschooled. And as we are getting it, you know, in my case, fourth hand, in Lauren's case, uh, second or third hand, (laughs) he is very negative with regards to homeschooling because when he was being homeschooled growing up, he was part of a family where there was a lot of neglect. And so he has a negative view of homeschooling. And for one... You know, my wife is hearing about this from the chiropractor and she says, well, you know, I think that's kind of a, a stupid argument. I'm sorry, but it, I, you know, I th- that's a bad argument because homeschooling is what you make it. So if you believe you were neglected, you believe that your education was not attended to sufficiently. You were homeschooled. You don't think your parents attended to your education with enough care, diligence, attention, to detail and how it was going and how you were doing, well, then that doesn't mean homeschooling is broken. That means your parents' approach to parenting was broken. Their attitude was broken. But if you homeschool your kids, there is nothing that says all of a sudden your parents are going to come over and start raising your child like you were raised or that some other homeschooling parents that you know are going to come over to your house and start raising your kid like they raise their kids. If you note some areas where your education or someone else's homeschooling education was a failure, then rather than say, oh, well, I guess I'll just send them to the public school. What's the difference? It's all the same. Rather than say that, what you could do is you could say, I'm going to reverse engineer what caused that problem or what would counteract it. If it was neglect, okay, then what kind of care and attention was needed instead of what was gotten? And then you fix the problem. You address the problem. You don't avoid the problem. To say, oh, it's not homeschool because some people have a bad experience with homeschooling is avoidance. And someone will say, well, that's, you know, can't you say the same thing about public schooling? And you can, but only to a point. And the point at which you can stop with uh, equivocating is where, When this teacher is literally dancing around the room, mocking you as a parent, 
because she's going to teach your kids and indoctrinate your kids and there's nothing you can do about it. And she knows it and she wants you to know it. She's literally mocking you and dancing around the room publicly as she decorates her classroom in rainbow flags and homosexual celebration. She is she's teaching your children a religious worldview. She she is. It's just a, a you know, a sex cult that has everything to do with being gay and lesbian and bi and trans, et cetera, et cetera. And godless. Or blaspheming against God, claiming that he affirms this when he very clearly does not in his word. Uh, read it. When you homeschool, if there are problems with homeschooling versus when there are problems with public schooling, you can actually take direct action to correct those problems in a way that is just, it, it does not happen. It cannot happen. It is not possible in the public schools. And they know it. And that's why they keep doing what they're doing. If it were possible in the public schools, well, then we wouldn't be having this conversation, but it's not. And we know that. And so you need to just mass exodus and get out like this is Egypt. And and that is a very apt comparison. Like this is Egypt and you are slaves in hard bondage for 400 years. You know, what was the response of the Israelites when they were delivered from Egypt, but then they were wandering in the desert or being pursued by Pharaoh who was angry at his loss of face, realizing this is going to be talked about and of not just all around Egypt, but all around the known world. Everyone who knows about Egypt is going to be talking about this, whispering, muttering. The Israelites complain that they've been brought out into the desert to die. Things were better under the Egyptians. Maybe they can go back. Maybe they'll be received. Maybe they can get their old job building pyramids for literally slave wages. If that's our attitude, again, I say again, we destroy ourselves, and I'm not so sure that we know God, which is much the same thing. Speaking of activism, speaking of the rabid onslaught of the homosexuals and the transgender in society, leaving no stone unturned, looking for ways to assert their mean prejudices and their animosity towards others, all the while claiming that they are the victims. There's this story over at Not The Bee from yesterday. Joel Abbott posted it. This congresswoman just pulverized this trans activist in a hearing on extremism by reading the activist's own tweets. And the name of the activist is Alejandra Caraballo. The tweet, which is pictured here, is, and I quote, The six justices who overturned Roe should never know peace again. It is our civic duty to accost them every time they are in public. They are pariahs. Since women don't have their rights, these justices should never have a peaceful moment in public again. That was June 25th, 2022. And might I just add that this kind of content for years has been permitted on Twitter. But if you are a conservative who even just tells a failed congressional candidate from Tennessee that what they just said was retarded, not threatening violence, not threatening harassment, just saying, well, that was retarded. Uh, You can be indefinitely suspended, removed from Twitter, and uh, apparently even 
the world's now second richest man, no longer the first richest man, according to Forbes. Uh, you know, apparently, even when he buys the platform and says, let's let everybody back on, you're still not going to get on. But I'm going to play this clip. This clip is from Andy Ngo, independent journalist. He's done quite a lot of work covering Antifa and BLM. He's been threatened. He's somebody who's actually, uh, you know, paid a cost to try and bring these things to light and do good journalism, in my opinion. He shares this video, I think from C-SPAN, uh, with the caption on Twitter. Thank, thank you, Joel Abbott, for sharing this on Not To Be so I could actually read it and at least hear some of the public conversation, if not participate in it. At the Oversight Dems hearing on white supremacy, Rep. Nancy Mace asked witnesses if extremist rhetoric on social media is a threat to democracy. Trans activist Alejandra Caraballo said yes. The congresswoman then presented Caraballo's tweets. So here you go. You're welcome. Take a listen. Is rhetoric on social media a problem and a threat to our democracy, Mr. Ward? Yes, absolutely. Mr. Siegel? Yes. Ms. Caraballo? Yes. Ms. Nomani? Yes. Ms. Tyler? Yes. Yes. Um, Another question I have. uh, Do you believe that rhetoric targeting officials with violence for carrying out their constitutional duties um, is a threat to democracy, Mr. Ward? Mr. Siegel? Yes. 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 All right. Thank you very much. Only a few weeks after the attempted attack on a Supreme Court justice on June 25th, one of the witnesses, Alejandro Caraballo, tweeted out the following in response to a decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade. And I'll quote directly from the tweet. The six justices who overturned Roe should never know peace again. It is our civic duty to accost them every time they're in public. They are pariahs. Since women don't have their rights, these justices should never have a peaceful moment in public again. I know something about being accosted. The night of January 5th, I was physically accosted on the streets of D.C. in Navy Yard by a constituent of mine. I fervently blamed rhetoric, rhetoric on social media, rhetoric at public events, for being physically accosted. I carry a gun everywhere I go when I am in my district and I'm at home because I know personally that rhetoric has consequences. I've had my car keyed. I've had my house spray painted. I had someone trespass in my house as recently as August. I've been doxxed on social media about where I live. Um, And I've had to add to security everywhere I go, often because I can't afford it. I have to carry my own firearm wherever I go. And um, Alejandra Caraballo also recently tweeted on November 19th, not even a month ago, that the Supreme Court, vested with the judicial power of the United States by our Constitution, stated they are not a legitimate court issuing decisions. And also the Supreme Court is an organ of the far right. So my last question today of Ms. Caraballo, do you stand by these comments, this kind of rhetoric on social media, and do you believe it's a threat to democracy? Thank you, Representative, for the opportunity to clarify and provide context to my tweets. Um, I have a question, is it yes or no? Do you believe your rhetoric is a threat to democracy when you're calling to accost a branch of government, the Supreme Court? I don't believe that's a correct uh, 
characterization of my statements. Did you not tweet that, that you thought that the Supreme Court justices should be accosted? What I'm saying is that 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 is not an accurate characterization of my statements. On June 8th of this year, a man was arrested near Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home in Maryland. He told law enforcement officers he wanted to kill a Supreme Court justice. He was found... um, uh, with uh, a knife, with a pistol, two magazines, ammunition, pepper spray, zip ties, a hammer, crowbar, and duct tape. Ms. Carbile, on page 12 and 13 of your written testimony, you painted concerned parents as having been infiltrated by white nationalists and far-right militia groups, which played a significant role in school board protests. This is not... This has not actually been my experience with concerned parents. In your testimony, you wrote that in Loudoun County, Virginia, unfounded rumors that spread in local parent groups on Facebook about an alleged trans student sexually assaulting a girl in a bathroom led to a firestorm of of several heated school board protests that descended into violence. But in fact, the perpetrator, it actually turned out, had committed two sexual assaults at two different Loudoun County schools in 2021 and was arrested on October 7th, 2021 by the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office. These weren't unfounded rumors, as you suggest. It actually turns out law enforcement had to act because a sexual assault occurred. So given this, I'm assuming that until now you were unaware of of what happened here and you're going to update your testimony for the committee. Is that correct? And that's where the video cuts off. That's the end of that video. So I don't know what the response was to the uh, question there from Mr. Donald, but pretty clearly from what you did here, there wasn't a yes or no. There was, oh, thank you for providing me with an opportunity to add context. You know, that, 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 that tweet that you just put up there, that doesn't accurately convey my sentiments. And, you know, as if like in black and white, what they actually literally said is you know, that's, that's taken out of context. These people on the left, what they actually say, even what the man in question, as I understand it, I don't know why we would complain about the Cambridge dictionary definition of a man and a woman changing, by the way, if we're going to use pronouns like Ms. Uh, you know, when somebody is a, a man just dressed up as a woman and, and basically threatening your livelihood, threatening your reputation, threatening you with irreparable harm if you dead name them so-called, as in call them by their birth name, or if you call them a man when they are a man. They are male, but they've gone through surgery. They've changed their wardrobe and attire. They've taken hormone uh, therapy, and now that's changed their voice. If they're a woman, biologically, and yet they take the hormone therapy. They might grow an Adam's apple. They might grow facial hair. They might have all kinds of problems. Again and again, we're seeing health issues and despair and destruction, self-destruction. And we are complicit in it. We are going along with it. We are, we are participating. We are affirming it. We are literally being told that this is gender affirming, quote, healthcare. It's not healthcare. It is a complete lack of care for the other person. It's totally selfish to enable this, to make excuses for it, and even to use the pronouns that are being insisted on, despite the fact that you have men dressing up as women, you have women dressing up as men, you have men getting surgeries to look more and more like 
women. You have women getting surgeries to look more and more like men. It's insanity. It is self-destruction. I say this not to gloat, not to be hateful. I say this with tears in my eyes. They destroy themselves. And we also, we participate in that if we affirm it. It's not right. It's not neutral. It's not negotiable according to God's word, that we are sinning to affirm it. Pick your battles, that's one thing. But pick your battles can't come to mean, you know, surrender again and again and again and affirm what is evil. I can't read Romans 132 any other way. I just can't. I cannot. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, and, and this is where I say, you destroy yourself. You, you deserve what you get because you're giving it to yourself. You, you deserve it. You have it coming and you are marching stubbornly on towards it. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that last part, they give approval to those who practice them, is why the Christian baker cannot just bake the cake. The Christian photographer photographer cannot just come and photograph the gay wedding. This is why the Christian website designer cannot just make your website promoting and affirming these behaviors, this kind of activism. This is why the Christian who knows their Bible, who reads their Bible, who fears God, cannot affirm these things. And there is a lot of precedent This is not a new thing. There's no new thing under the sun. This is not a new thing. This is just a return to an old thing, which is the paganism of the Roman Empire under Diocletian and the persecution of Christians who refused to say, oh, yes, that's correct. That's right. Oh, sure. Yep. You bet. Caesar is Lord in the way that you mean it. This is no new thing. And also, too, if you look back through Eusebius's church history, you will find back then too, you had the church not just persecuted those who refused to affirm what they could not affirm because they feared God. You also had those who did go along and left. You had some who rather than be taken and raped themselves for the sport of soldiers or government officials who were pagans, who were just looking for an excuse looking for an excuse to take from Christians or punish Christians or violate Christians rather than be taken into their hands. They would kill themselves. They would take poison. This is no new thing. And so also our response needs to be faithful since we are therefore surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run the race that has been set before us. And you know what? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Rejoice if you are counted worthy of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, because your reward is great in heaven. But speaking of, before we run out of time, let's talk about what was going on in the historical context of the nativity, not just the historical context of the early church, not just that Jesus went to the cross, that he died on our behalf as the righteous atonement, the obedient son of God submitted 
to death, even death on a cross, a public execution reserved for the worst criminals to make an example for everyone else of what happened if you crossed the Romans, if you disobeyed or displeased them, threatened them in any way. The birth of Jesus is remarkable. It is extraordinary. It is not for no reason that every year around this time, we remember, we remind one another, we teach our children also what happened with the nativity. Now, the scoffer will say that the nativity story is not in the oldest gospel, Mark's gospel. The scoffer will say, and does, that the nativity story is only mentioned in two of the gospels. The scoffer will say, we have no way of knowing how Jesus actually came into the world or what his background was, what his education was, how he got to be the way that he was. I listened to a video the other night about how maybe Jesus was a Pharisee and that's why he was so bitter against them. That's why there was such bad blood between them. Maybe he was a Sadducee. Maybe he was a scribe. He did know the scriptures really well. Maybe he was an Essene. He was one of these mystics that went off into the wilderness. You know, he does that after he's baptized by John in the River Jordan. Maybe he was an Essene who came back into society to preach repentance and to be hailed as Messiah, the anointed one. But the Christian will not say those things. The Christian will not try and look for any other explanation whatsoever, so long as they don't have to affirm that this was fully God, fully man, the incarnate God-man, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The Christian will look at the historical context, absolutely, but not so as to find ways to give credit to this people group and that people group and this one over here and this religion and that philosophy and this mythology and this better empire because we want to make everybody equal and say, ah, it was all the same because they want it to be all the same right now. The Christian will not say that. The Christian will look at the historical context so as to better understand what was God doing, what is God doing, what will God do because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We look at the historical context, and it helps us to appreciate God's redemptive plan for his people and how he is keeping his promises. Not just that he is keeping his promises, but how he is fulfilling them for all the nations to see and to be without excuse. So backing up, before we get into the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, the coming of Jesus to conquer sin and death. Let's talk about God's covenant with Israel. So the promised land, the land of Canaan, as it was formerly known, God said would be for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. That would be their inheritance forever. And actually, there's an argument that could be made that it was not Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants who were the interlopers or the invaders or the usurpers. They were the rightful owners of Canaan and the promised land, and they had the earlier claim. 
And then you have other people groups who come in, they settle in the intervening years, for instance, 400 years, where the Jews are slaves in the land of Egypt. They go there. Remember when there's a famine, Jacob, who wrestles with God, he has 12 sons. His favorite son, Joseph, is hated by his brothers because he is the father's favorite, which is a preview also of how Christians will be treated. But Joseph's brothers decide at one point to kill Joseph. Then they have a change of heart. They change their minds. They say, well, let's sell him. Let's sell him to these slavers. Then we get some money. We'll tell dad that he was killed. Either way, we'll be rid of him, but we won't have his blood on our hands. Whatever happens to him in slavery, not our problem. In some sense, the just reward for that evil that Joseph's brothers do to him is that they and their descendants become slaves, all of them. In some sense, they are falling into the pit that they themselves have dug they and their descendants after them, slaves for 400 years in Egypt until God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him, let my people go. 400 years, that's a long time, but they increase in the land. They don't decrease. And at the end of those 400 years, God brings Israel out of Egypt by his own mighty right hand. And then subsequently, in a circuitous way, brings them into the promised land and drives out the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, these other people groups who have come in and settled, who are, in some cases, giants, in all cases, worshipers of false gods, demons, wicked deities, I believe, fallen angels, actual entities, not just statues, not just names, not just myths, not just fables and made-up stories. But God drives out these other peoples before Israel, gives the promised land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as he promised. Because there's an earlier promise, actually. There's an earlier promise that God has given from the beginning when Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit and are thrown out of the Garden of Eden and are cursed. God also gives this promise of a savior who will come, who will crush the head of the serpent with his heel. And that promised savior is Jesus. But first, before that promised savior comes, God gives the promised land to Israel and says that they will be his people. He will be their God. This will show the nations that he is God, that their gods are no gods at all, that he is God above all gods. He is Lord of all lords. He is king of all kings. And yet, he says from the beginning, you must obey my law. You must keep my commandments. You must worship only me. You must treat one another with justice, fairness, mercy, kindness, or else I will hand you over to your enemies. And so over a period of generations, hundreds of years, Israel disobeys, worships other gods. God sends prophets 
again and again to call the people to repentance, to come back, to come back. He's very slow to anger, but at a certain point, he says, that's enough. And they are ripe for judgment. And so God gives the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Judah and the southern kingdom of Israel, into the hands of their enemies, just like he said he would. The Assyrians capture the northern kingdom of Judah in 721 BC. The Babylonians capture Israel in 597 BC. Both of these events come to pass just as God had told the people through the prophets, just as he promised. With these two successive conquests of Judah and of Israel, many Jews are killed or carried into foreign lands or they flee or if they stay in their ancestral homeland They're ruled by foreigners. The Babylonians and the Assyrians are both conquered and subsumed by the Achaemenid Persian Empire. And then you fast forward to this character known as Alexander the Great, who himself, as a Macedonian king, epic general, warrior, all-around energetic guy, Alexander the Great defeats the Persians conquers their empire, takes possession of Judea, and then he dies. He is a flash of the pan historically. He does not live to a ripe old age. He dies doing what he loved to do, which is conquer the world. And after his death, which on his deathbed, by the way, he says, let my empire go to the strongest. He's asked who will succeed him. And he says, basically the strongest. Basically, you guys fight it out. I won it through might, through war. You guys can fight over it, which is not a very nice thing to say, but typically it's how the cookie crumbles anyways, regardless of who you say is going to be the successor. There's always a dispute. And so what had formerly been Israel is ruled by the empire formed by one of these four generals. The Seleucid Empire starts its rule of Judea in 281 BC. Fast forward 120, 100 to 120 or so years, and you get this Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is known as the wicked. And Jews and Gentiles alike agree that this guy was cruel. He was domineering. He was repressive. He was totalitarian. He persecutes the Jews. He desecrates the temple in Jerusalem by offering the sacrifice of a pig on the altar, sprinkling the blood of a pig and the broth made from pig's flesh, which the Jews were told is unclean and you cannot eat pig, don't don't have anything to do with swine. He desecrates the temple and even forces the high priest and other devout Jews to eat pork which they were forbidden to do. This is very, very similar to what the LGBTQ movement is actively trying to do to Christians right now. They key in on the thing that we believe is unclean, and then they're trying to force us to do it, to desecrate, but more to the point, to dominate us. It's a power game. It is entirely political. That's why the Democrats are behind them, is because they know that they have to do something about the Christians in America to get what they want. They have to either discourage us, demoralize us, train our children to worship their gods or destroy us, provoke us to doing something rash and then destroy us, use that as a pretext. It's nothing new under the sun. It is nothing new under the sun. 
look at Antiochus Epiphanes. But just so, the response, nothing new under the sun. Then, and if it happens again in America, it's nothing new. King Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire, he provokes what is known as the Maccabean Revolt in 167 to 160 BC, in which the Jews, led by a certain warrior group called the Maccabees, that's why we call it the Maccabean Revolt, drove the Seleucids out. So they were successful. They did drive out the Seleucids and reestablished nominal Jewish self-government in the region again, which only held together for about 40 years, 40, 50 years, from 110 to 63 BC. And a characteristic of this government, it was known as the Hasmonean dynasty, was a reduction in the influence of both Hellenism, that would be Greek culture, thinking, philosophy, religion, a reduction in the influence of both Hellenism and Hellenistic Judaism, which I won't go into right now, but save that one for later. The Hasmoneans, this short-lived, a few decades long uh, Jewish dynasty, they were conquered by the Roman general Pompeius in 63 BC, thus ending, so far as I know, until modern times, meaningful, substantive Jewish self-rule. So 2,000 years of them not governing themselves as a people in a meaningful way. More on what I mean about that in a minute. All brought to an end by the Romans. I believe there was a civil war among the Jews. Pompeius exploits that while they are fighting amongst themselves. He swoops in, conquers Judea. Then Judea becomes a client kingdom of the Roman Empire, particularly under Herod the Great, after the Roman Senate declares him, wait for it, king of the Jews in 37 BC, Judea is effectively under Roman rule. He's a puppet. He is a vassal. He might be called king of the Jews, but who's declaring him king of the Jews? Not the Jewish people, not the prophet of God anointing him, the Roman Senate. Very little different than in our day when, let's say, for instance, the United States of America goes into Afghanistan, goes into Iraq, deposes the Taliban or deposes Saddam Hussein, and then says, all right, guys, it's time to form a new government, and here's a list of the people we are cool with. And then the United States Senate, patterned after, <laughs> patterned after the Roman Senate, by the way, says, all right, we're going to fund, support, invest in this client government in this region that we just conquered. We're going to invest in them being able to hold on to power because we don't want these other guys getting back in or taking over and fighting us again. Now, who is Herod the Great? Who is this guy? Because he does feature. He features prominently and his son features prominently in the gospel narrative. He is a big, big deal. Well, as a vassal of the Roman Empire, you might ask, why Herod? Right? What's so special about Herod? Why did they pick him? Herod, get this, get this. This is fascinating stuff because this is where history starts to connect and we start to put pieces together and understand the broader implications for our time. Herod 
gets his position, the Senate declares him king of the Jews in 37 BC because his father, Herod's father, has a close relationship with the Roman general and dictator, Julius Caesar. How's that? How's that for wild? Isn't that crazy? You think Julius Caesar, oh, he's interested in fighting the Gauls or fighting the Germanic tribes or what have you. He's working in Western Europe. What do you mean he's got something to do with the run-up to the context of the nativity? Well, he does, though. He does. Because Julius Caesar has a friendship with Herod's father, it's, it's nepotism. It's nepotism 101. Julius Caesar pulls strings and makes sure Herod is the guy because he's going to be a loyal ally, presumably, of Caesar of Julius Caesar. Now, to give you some idea of how ruthless Herod the Great was, his mother-in-law came from the Hasmonean dynasty, the previous ruling dynasty in Judea, self-governing until Pompeius brought that to an end. Herod's mother-in-law wanted to get the Hasmoneans back into a place of prominence. Now, that obviously wouldn't necessarily be so good for Herod, But this is typically how it goes. The upstart is not welcomed when he takes over by the people who were the status quo up until five minutes ago. They don't like it. They don't like being eclipsed. They don't like being pushed off to the side. They want to get back into the limelight. They see themselves as for decades having been the rightful rulers, and they don't like this. So Herod's mother-in-law plots to put a member of her family named Aristobulus III into the role of high priest. That's a very important role. She wants him to be installed as the high priest. That'll bring some luster and uh, street cred, if you will, back to the family. He'll be in a place of influence. He can also move and shake. And if you will, they won't have to rely on Herod, which Herod gets wind of. He hears about this, he finds out about it, he's got spies, he's got ears, and when his mother-in-law, when Herod's mother-in-law sends Aristobulus III off to meet with Mark Antony, who's right then in the midst of a civil war with Octavian over who's going to be the Roman emperor next, Julius Caesar gets assassinated because Brutus and Cassius and some others felt very threatened by him, speaking of status quo being upset and the old order not taking a liking to it. That's what got Julius Caesar killed. And that's going to be fresh on everybody's mind. Uh, The assassination of Julius Caesar rocked the Roman world. It still is in our memory because it was such a cataclysmic event in world history. When Herod finds out that his mother-in-law has arranged for Aristobulus III to go meet with Mark Antony, He is terrified that Aristobulus III, instead of being installed as high priest, is going to replace him as king of the Jews, as the vassal client of Rome. Because Mark Anthony, he might win. He might win out. He might get to be the next emperor. And just like Herod got that position in the first place from his father's cozy relationship with Julius Caesar, if Mark Anthony is going to be the next guy, well... You don't want the rival, as you see it, 
to your position going and making that close relationship that you got your current position by exploiting, you know, that, that same kind of a dynamic through. So Herod has Aristobulus III assassinated. He also has several other members of his family assassinated as he suspects them of plotting against him. And, and again, we're, we're talking about centuries in some cases here where you've got the fall of Judah, the fall of Israel to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, the Persians ruling, Alexander the Great conquering Persia, the Seleucids ruling. But we're talking decades, a mere decades from the collapse of the government that came out of the Maccabean revolt to right now. So actually a fairly short period of time in terms of memory. And also, again, too, we're talking not all that long ago that Julius Caesar, effectively king, but emperor, you know, more than a king, emperor, dictator for life, has been assassinated. Why? Because as Herod is going to look at it, he wasn't maybe ruthless enough. He was too magnanimous. He was too soft. What got him killed was that he was not eliminating threats before they eliminated him. And so what is Herod going to do? He's going to eliminate threats before they get him. He's going to take them out before they can take him out, even if they are members of his own household, his own family. Now, he is Herod the Great in part because he embarks on these major building projects like the temple, like fortresses, like baths. He builds these great public works, kind of like a Donald Trump figure, that have his fame and his reputation spread far and wide across the region. And then, and this is where we'll stop and we'll put a pin in this and we'll come back to it again soon. Then you have word come to Herod that Magi have come from the East because they believe that the Messiah, that is a word that can also denote anointed one, which could be priest. And we've already seen that Herod is willing to have someone who is going to be the high priest assassinated if he feels threatened. This could be a priest character if they are the anointed one, because you anoint the priest, the high priest, to fulfill their oaths and duties before God. This could also be a king. And if Herod is paranoid, maybe not even paranoid necessarily always, actually perceiving threats to his position, his status, his rule. If he is terribly, terribly concerned about being replaced, usurped, eliminated, what's he thinking when he hears that a Messiah, a Christ, is expected to be born in Bethlehem? Based on the context here, he's thinking the way this game is played, we've got foreigners who are coming to pay homage, to give gifts, asking where they can find this baby boy. And what is the phrase that they use? What is the phrase that they use? Look at Matthew 2, 1 through 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews, for we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him 
homage, according to the NRSV, UE. New revised standard version, updated edition. That's, that's a little redundant. Let's go with the ESV. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Same difference. There's that phrase, king of the Jews. What had the Senate declared Herod in 37 BC that put him in the position that he's in right now? They declared him king of the Jews. What is the sign that is nailed to the cross next to Jesus? What does it say? King of the Jews. Not for no reason. It wasn't just mockery. It was, this is your crime. Because you are claiming that there's a higher authority than the Roman Senate. By extension, the Roman Empire. As in, this is of a piece with an uprising. This is a political threat to our power. Now, that's not to say that's all it is. Or that that's first and foremost what it is. No, no. This is God's redemptive plan, but it is to say there's no getting around the political ramifications because those are chief most in Herod's mind and they are predictive. You know what he's going to do next. You know, not just because you've read the story, but you know, based on his track record, what he's going to do also too, just so we know what God's going to do next because of what he has done. And that's the big idea, not we're so great. Look how wonderful that God would come and save us because we deserved it. God is so great. God is so wonderful. God is so merciful and loving towards us. And look at all this death and destruction and killing and murder and assassination and plotting and schemes and selfish ambition and vanity and a chasing after the wind. And in the midst of it all, you have Jesus born to a virgin, Mary, a virtuous, chaste, young woman, let it be done to me as you have said. You have Joseph, an honorable man, thinking of putting her away quietly when he finds out she's pregnant, then an angel appears and says, take the woman as your wife. She's not been improper. She's not been wicked. She's not been unfaithful to you. The child she carries is God's own son. Now more on that too. I want to talk more about this term, son of God, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, because that also is fraught with peril and full of meaning, not just in a biblical context or in the narrow scope of a Jewish mind in the middle of history, you know, as BC turns into AD here, before Christ, after death or Anno Domini, year of our Lord, but in the broader world, the Hellenistic world, the Roman world, that term, son of God, is also extraordinarily packed with meaning and not to be misunderstood, not carelessly thrown around. That is a term, that is a title, that is a claim that is reserved for only the greatest of world conquerors and kings and emperors, only the greatest. And yet, this is the son of God? Whoa, stand back. But it's just like God again and again and again to say, no, that's actually mine. No, that belongs to me. Nope, that's mine too. Yep, actually, I don't like the way you're using this, so I'm going to take it away. I'm going to give it to this person over here instead. Oh, you have nothing? I'm going to make you great if you are humble and if you put your trust in me. Oh, you're dead? 
I'm going to make you alive again. You're lame. I'm going to make you able to walk. You're sick. I'm going to make you well. You're blind. I'm going to give you the ability to see. You can't hear anything. Well, guess what? I just opened your ears. You're welcome because I'm great. That's what God says. Because he's great, not because we're great. And that's part of why it's so much of a paradigm shift because we've got all these other guys. They're called the great. Herod is what? The great. Alexander is what? The great. Julius Caesar needs no introduction. And the cult of emperor worship in Rome is, not for no reason, what gets the early church persecuted until Constantine comes along, converts to Christianity, and calls an end. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode where we will pick back up. We'll talk more about such things and more about what's going on in the wider world in our day. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.